0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's baha dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Allison Grover Quarry. Allison was raised as a Baha'i, and she spent her formative years living in India, where she went to the New Era International School, where her parents were administrators. Allison speaks of her time there and the adjustments she had to make coming back to the States. I started the interview by asking Allison where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I started my life as a small child in Springfield, Massachusetts. My parents moved there in the 1960s for two reasons. One, because they wanted to support the fledgling Baha'i community there. And two, they wanted to live in an inner city. I think they really wanted to to be of real service there. Mm -hmm. So they moved there when I was about three, and I lived there until I was eight. When I was eight, we moved to India, and my parents worked at an international Baha'i school. They were administrators at a school called the New Era High School, which is located in Panchgani which is about 100 miles inland from the city of Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. After five years when I was 13, we moved back to the United States because my mother was ill, and my father became the director of a Baha'i school and conference center in Maine called Greenacre Baha'i School. And I went through high school in Elliott, Maine. Those are the places. And then how did I like each of them, or what was it like? You know, my, my recollections, of Springfield are a little murky because I was so young. What I remember is living in an Italian neighborhood where everybody yelled a lot, quite happily. (laughs) I mean, it was happy yelling. Mm -hmm. But that was a good preparation for for India, where everybody yells all the time. Everybody just speaks in loud voices. That was really great. I remember walking to school every day, which is amazing, even in an inner city, being able to walk to school at age six, seven, and eight. Um, That was the 1960s. That would have been the late 60s when I was doing that, I remember our home filled with all kinds of interesting people. My parents, once they became Baha'is, were no longer actively involved in civil disobedience, but they were very involved in the civil rights movement as Baha'is and sharing the message of the oneness of the human family. And so they were constantly bailing people out of jail. They were constantly housing people. When uh, Baha'is of various races came through our area to support the civil rights activities and the development of the Baha'i community in the context of civil rights, they often stayed at our home. And so that was really wonderful. I can remember some really wild hippies who stayed with us.
0: Now, Allison, what was the racial climate in Springfield at that time?
1: I don't really know. I think that there was a lot happening because, like I said, my parents were constantly bailing people out of jail. I've never actually heard them say anything like, there was tension, but I've always imagined that there would have been because Springfield was a city that was going through transition. I think that area, well, all up and down the Connecticut River had been a very strong textiles community, and that had all really started to fade by the 60s. I think Springfield, like most cities, is still quite segregated, although I haven't been to Springfield lately, and you live close to to Springfield, so you might know better, But I can remember our neighborhood was specifically Italian. I don't know how we ended up there. I remember seeing people of color around. But for me, it's hazy because I might mix them up with all the Baha'is who would come and stay with us.
0: The other question I have, Allison, is you mentioned that your parents stopped doing civil disobedience after they became Baha'is. What's the relationship or the correlation between them stopping civil disobedience and becoming Baha'is?
1: That's a great question. My understanding is that Baha'is are, first of all, loyal to the government of the country in which we live. So that requires being obedient to law. But that we must stand up for rights. As a matter of fact, I think that the United States Baha'i community has a very old and long-standing relationship, especially in the early part of the century, very actively involved with race amity work. And the promotion of the understanding of Baha'u'llah's foundational principle, which is the oneness of humanity. So I think that they felt that their conscience dictated for them that civil disobedience by its very nature is disobedience to a law that one disagrees with for whatever reason. And they had been involved with other kinds of protests. My father had been arrested in the early 60s protesting nuclear testing. But anyway, he was very involved with all of that. So they felt that what they should be focused on was rather than protesting what was breaking down, was to be building something new. And so they chose to work on building community. So they helped people who were protesting because they felt that that was something beneficial. There weren't that many people who were helping the protesters in that area. So they did that. They bailed people out of jail. They gave them places to stay and fed them. But the rest of the time, they were about the work of building a new world of equality. Again, that's my 40-year-old perspective on something that my parents did 40 years ago.
0: And the other question I have, Allison, is do you know the story on how they became Baha'is?
1: I do. My parents moved to Peterborough, New Hampshire, when I was about one and a half, so maybe two to two and a half years. Well, it must have been two and a half or three years after they were married. My father got a job teaching in a local high school near Peterborough, New Hampshire. And my grandmother, who was friends with Baha'is, met some Baha'is at a sacred dance workshop in Hanover, New Hampshire, and asked if there were any Baha'is in Peterborough, and if there were, could they please look up my mother, because my mother had moved to a small town, I was about one and a half, and she didn't really know anyone. It turns out that there was a lovely Baha'i family named Mary and George Godding, they now live in Rochester, Vermont, and have for many years, who had a daughter who was exactly my age.
0: Is that Joanne Godding?
1: Uh, Joanne Godding's younger sister Becky, who oh. lives in, she's a lawyer, mm-hmm. and she lives in East Hampton. Yes, exactly. And so Mary Godding turned up, and we started to play. Little, little kids started to play, and whatever it is that you know mothers and little children do when they sort of hang out. And it very quickly the the conversation turned to spiritual matters. And my mother had really been searching. She'd been studying a number of different faiths, and she'd been searching for an answer to the question that had plagued her her whole life, which was, what happens to all of the people who either don't know about Jesus Christ or who aren't Christians? Why is it that hundreds of billions of people would be condemned to hell rather than either having spiritual guidance of their own that would come from God or who would be treated with love and given a chance to develop spiritual capacities without being Christians? And she, her whole life had been sort of shushed whenever she asked that question. And she had not found adequate answers in any other religion. But that was a question that was so happily and easily answered by Mary Godding that my mother became intrigued and began to read and read. And, and she knew, immediately she felt in her heart that this was where she wanted to be, that the focus on the oneness of humanity, the building of a, of a world where the foundation of the, the spiritual the, Guidance from the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, it would be equality in in every sense.
0: So, what was uh, what was the answer that Mary gave to your parents to that question, or to your okay. mother to that question?
1: Yeah. So, the answer that that she gave my mother was that the understanding that Baha'is have from Baha'u'llah's teachings, Baha'u'llah being the founder of the Baha'i Faith, is that all the religions have come from the same God at different times through human history in different parts of the world to guide. Us through whatever social stage we're going through, as well as to provide the spiritual guidance we need to develop. That was the answer that my mother was looking for. So that meant that if one was a Buddhist, one was not immediately condemned to hell because Buddha was a, uh, a, a, was a, a manifestation of God's love and light and guidance on the planet for the people of India at that time. And she was so happy about this she she, you know she couldn't wait to get home and tell my father she wanted to immediately become a baha'i that alone was enough for her she went home and said to my father this is it i found it i found the religion that i've been searching for which recognizes and authenticates and respects uh, every other religion and sees everyone as a sacred path leading to god just coming at different times in human history Uh, that was it for her really she did go on to study very carefully the writings of Baha'u'llah. We're so lucky to have so many authorized texts, either in Baha'u'llah's own hand or dictated and then, and, you know, and then approved by him. And so she just read and read for a couple of weeks, and then she was ready. My father was still an avowed, I wouldn't say atheist exactly, maybe agnostic. And so he tried to talk my mother out of becoming a Baha'i but realized very quickly that she was going to go ahead. And so she very happily joined the Baha'i community of Peterborough, New Hampshire. And he wasn't very interested. He would uh, go with her to various Baha'i gatherings, and he would take his leftist newspapers and magazines, and he'd sit and read with them very prominently displayed so people could see that he was not interested in any religion, that he was really focused on, you know, on important social and intellectual pursuits. It really was a couple of years of friendship with Baha'is, and attention particularly from this amazing Baha'i from Maine who just spent most of his time. He was a a fuller brush salesman. His name was Wayne Hoover, and he basically just traveled around the eastern United States and Bermuda and the Bahamas and stuff sharing the message of Baha'u'llah with people. And he was a very forthright teacher, and so he would just say to my father, you know, really, you, you should give this serious investigation. You're a very intelligent person, and there's every answer here for you. And my father just kept putting him off and finally, he gave my father a very strange book to read uh, called Private Doubting. It's a very odd book about a man who had received messages from some person, you know, who had died in World War I, dictating to this colonel in the English army all about a message of peace and how, the, you know, really war should end, that World War I was so terrible. And so on this book became very of great interest to spiritualists and um, all kinds of people after World War I, pacifists and so on, and he gave this to my father to read. My mother was horrified, and so she took the, the book into the bathroom and got in the bathtub and wouldn't come out, because she didn't want my father to read it, and she pretended she was in there reading it. And finally, she just couldn't stand there anymore, so she came out, my father read it, Wayne Hoover showed up, and my father was so taken by the message of peace, despite the fact that it had been written under these sort of bizarre circumstances, at least from my father's point of view it was bizarre that he really started to take the Baha'i faith seriously after that. By the time they were living in Springfield, he really had done a lot of reading and study and talked to a lot of people. So he became a Baha'i. Now, if you were to ask him, he would say that that what really changed his heart was the fact that I asked him to say a prayer with me every night before I went to sleep. And that prayer, I, I loved this particular prayer Well, it's the healing prayer. The reason I liked it is because there's a part that refers to God as being our succor or our comfort. But at age two, I thought it was sucker. Uh. I sucked my thumb. (laughs) So I loved this prayer because I thought it was Baha'u'llah's prayer for me as a thumb sucker. So I asked him to say this prayer for me every night. So this is how it goes. Thy name is my healing, O my God. And remembrance of Thee is my remedy. Nearness to Thee is my hope and love for Thee is my companion.
2: Thy mercy
1: to me is my healing and my succor in both this world and the world to come. Thou verily art the all-bountiful, the all-knowing, the all-wise. So I ask for this prayer every night, and he feels that that prayer softened his heart and that those words of Baha'u'llah penetrated and healed whatever pain he had been through spiritually and what were able to you know cause his heart to be open
0: do you know what that Um, pain was
1: well i don't Mm -hmm. um in in a lot of detail but i know that he had suffered a lot when his father had died his father died when he was 18 Mm. i think that caused him or, or 20 or something and he he went through a lot of suffering and he turned away from religion he grew up in a in a wonderfully religious household his parents were congregationalists his grandfather had been a Congregational minister who had started several churches in Boston and ended his life in Petersam Mass as a minister for the, the adorable little Congregational church in Petersam, which is still there. And something happened after his father died and he went into the army. Um, he never served overseas, but he served two years in Texas, and then he got out and became a, a, you know an anti-nuclear activist and stuff, um, whatever people did in the early '60s, sort of before it was really pre-hippy. I'm not sure what else everybody was gearing up for, before, sort of pre early civil rights movement and anti-nuclear stuff. And
0: sort of like the Pete Seeger era.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he had become a folk singer and, uh, you know, did all this kind of stuff. So I think he, he had just kind of shut religion out because he couldn't figure out how, you know, how to reconcile what he had grown up knowing as a Christian with all of this stuff that was happening in the world. But too, he just couldn't see the two... Belonging together.
0: Now, how do you think he reconciled it?
1: I think that he read and understood what Baha'u'llah was saying about the fact that this is the time in human history when we are in the final stages of our development going from adolescence into adulthood, in which we will build peace and security on the planet, and that we will each person will have the opportunity to, to develop our potential through education, through spiritual transformation. And I think that gave him the hope that he could find, find a way to make a positive contribution and that was still spiritually based rather than shutting that part out and only focusing again on just the breaking down of protesting and breaking down what had been. I would want to say that I don't believe that it's necessarily bad to protest what is happening. And so I just want to make that clear that I'm, I'm not casting any judgment on that. I think that the work that, that activists do is important, but I think Baha'is have a different role to play because we have this guidance about how to build the new world and I think that that appealed to him very much because I think ultimately he was a very positive person now people who know him and have known him over the years are, are sort of shocked when they find out that he had an FBI record because he all this protesting in the '60s and you know that he was a, sort of on the verge of being an anarchist and stuff because he he went from that to being a very spiritually focused and service focused person. Both my parents have been phenomenal role models for me. So that was the start of their life and they then made a commitment to to serving humanity and I think that's ultimately what led them to go to India. They were very excited about getting to work at an international school that served mostly Asians and Africans and people from India. It's not the typical international school that serves you know, American diplomat kids, like in the capital of the, of the nation, that's a very common. There are a lot of big international schools like that. But this school, you know, our high school, really is serving students from India and then other countries in Asia and Africa.
0: Now, you said this was a Baha'i-inspired school?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was founded by a Baha'i, an amazing, remarkable Baha'i woman in 1945. It was the first Baha'i school in the world outside of Iran, which is, you know, where the Baha'i faith started. So it's the first one. And it started out as just a kindergarten in this beautiful little town up on a mountain outside Bombay. And then each year they added a grade. And I think the first graduating class was in forty-five, like maybe late 50s. And thousands and thousands of students from different countries, like I said, in Asia, some from Africa, a very few from from the West, a few from Australia and New Zealand in the uh, early 80s. But now it's primarily Indian. And they just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the school mm. two years ago. Marvelous. They had thousands of people come to, to honor the school. It was wonderful.
0: And what's the name of the school again?
1: It's called the New Era High School. So even though it, is a, it goes from what they call in India pre-K, so that's like three, four, five-year-olds, through to junior college preparation. Students in India graduate from high school at the end of 10th grade. They take some exams, and then they're finished with school then they can do two extra years of sort of pre- college preparation or a junior college, they call it, before they go on to university. And so they, they have that program. And branching off from that school have come other extraordinary service and development projects and education. They, have a, they did teacher training there for years. Many village governments around India would approach the Baha'is and say, please help us to train our own villagers as teachers because the Indian government... Only guarantees education through I think maybe sixth grade uh, in India, and then they would pay teachers, but most of the times teachers teachers wouldn't even come and there's never any inspection process because there are you know hundreds of thousands of villages throughout India and so villagers in many of these places felt the importance of their children getting a chance to have a proper education and knowing how important it is to learn to read and write and so the Baha'i community around India for more than 40 years has been developing teacher training programs to train teachers to then teach children in villages so the children can have an education. There was a whole program that came from that. Now they're doing training of uh, university students. at this. It's called the New Era Foundation. That's also in that same little town, and it's all associated with the school. They have phenomenal development projects, and it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary place.
0: And what was your experience like in India?
1: India was idyllic for me. I went there when I was eight. I left when I was thirteen. It was absolutely idyllic um, it was it, We lived in this beautiful village on a mountain, looking a thousand feet down into a valley. I went to school with with children from Iran and Arabia and several countries in Africa, including Ethiopia and children from all walks of life from India. It was just a phenomenal experience for me i There were some ways in which I I really stood out a lot and uncomfortably, and those things were challenging, and I'll sort of outline what those are in a minute. But aside from that, for the most part, it was just a wonderful experience to grow up in a multilingual environment, to grow up in a multiracial environment. You know, India is incredibly diverse religiously, and even though we hear in the West about lots of religious conflict, India is a country where there is conflict, but then, you know, something has sparked... Things happen and then everyone just goes on and and gets back to their own life. And religion is a deeply personal and spiritual thing and it's just a a given that that's an important part of everyday life. And that was a lovely experience for me to grow up in that kind of environment. India is also a place that really pays attention to children. It's a very child-centered country in many ways and it's community-oriented and it's hospitable and it's family-oriented and elders are deeply respected. And all of those things gave me an opportunity to, to experience what really, what living in a community is really like. You know, where the children are, are watched by everyone, where elders are respected and and helped in every way. It was just marvelous. The contrast was the deep lessons that I learned, because I did have some memories of my life in the U.S. because I didn't leave here until I was eight. The contrast was understanding how deeply profound the world's problems really are. And what Baha'u'llah says about the steps we need to take, the things we need to do practically as individuals, as a community, you know, as groups of people, so the community doesn't necessarily all have to be Baha'i's, but just all of those things, that what we have to do to remedy the unbelievable inequalities and the, the horrific injustices that exist. I got to see them every day. I had friends who had one change of clothes. Um, I had friends who, who, who didn't eat breakfast because their family was so poor that they never ate breakfast. You know, these things had a deep... They sound sort of trite and stereotypical, and I, I'm sorry about that, but it, it was true, you know, for an 8-, 9-, and 10-year-old uh, to see those things. I saw, you know, when I was 13, some of my friends, one day somebody would just not show up to school, and everyone would say, well, we're so-and-so. Well, her parents have betrothed her, and so she can't go oh to school Oh, my God. Anymore. 13 years old. So, you know, that was that was very eye-opening about the arranged marriage situation. You know, we heard stories about how even though bride burning, a widow burning, had been outlawed so long ago, how those things were still going on, I got to see firsthand how the caste system, to say nothing of the complexities of a class system, which affects every country in the world, the terrible inequities we see between rich and poor, upper class, lower class. But India is complicated by a caste system, which comes from a 5,000-year-old religion, and so I went to school with untouchables, and I went to school with brahmins, and I went to school with very rich children of very rich families, and I went to school with, you know, the children of the beggars in our town. And and our school had scholarships for those, you know, for the local children, particularly the children of the, of of the beggars, so that they could come and go to the school, and get it get a chance at education. And so I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of amazing things. I felt like I was seeing some of Baha'u'llah's vision for how we can be educated and spiritually transformed when we see each person as a, as a spiritual being, a spiritual creation of God. And I understood that at a very early age. That, I, that penetrated me very, very deeply. So I was very grateful for that. The things that were difficult for me were that being American meant, even though there were only two American families, being American meant having a certain amount of privilege, very similar to white privilege in the United States. But I was very conscious of it. Uh, I felt it all the time. Being the daughter of the vice principals of the school meant that there was a certain level of privilege because India is so deeply caste-oriented. For example, I had some teachers who would not really grade me properly because they didn't want to offend my parents. Um, and They were afraid that if I didn't do well in a subject that my parents would be offended and they'd be fired from the school. Nothing could have been further from the truth especially with my parents both having been educators. But the teachers didn't know that, or they were didn't want to take that risk. That was very frustrating, to feel that. Sometimes I'd get preferential treatment in classes. I would be called on more often if if the teacher felt that I would know the answers. I was very conscious of that, and it was mortifying. One time, I had a, we had a teacher who was teaching us about the history of race around the world. We were looking at different parts of the world and what happen in terms of lighter and darker skinned and even paler peoples in different parts of the world. And when she was talking about the United States, she began to talk about how the white people in the United States were not the real Americans, were not the real people. And she told some of the history of the native peoples of this country. And to prove her point, she said, she called me up to the front of the room and we we all wore school uniforms. And she had me turn around and she showed people how pale the back of my knees were. And she showed them how it was so easy to see the blood vessels on the back of my knees. She said any person that where you can see the blood vessels on the back of their knees and you know that they have a lot of European blood and that person would not be a, a, a real American. <laughs> that affected me deeply. That was of course extremely embarrassing, but I I think that I also understood what she was trying to do and that
0: How old were you, Alison?
1: Mm, maybe I was 10. But I, but, 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 I, um, but I think I understood what she was trying to do, which was to, to help them understand the value of them being brown-skinned people or black Africans. And ironically, my mother is Native American and is a member of the Abenaki tribe, which is a tribe in Vermont. It's just received acknowledgment by the state of Vermont, finally, and Quebec. So that was very ironic. But anyway, I, you know, I, didn't, I don't know if I knew that at the time. Looking back on it, it seems ironic now, that. um, and I think if that teacher knew that now. What that particular incident taught me was this deep awareness of the terrible pain that people have suffered because of skin color, and that further propelled me on this life journey of this desire to promote the oneness of the human family and to see these pains of racism that we see here in the United States, but in any part of the world, people experience terrible inequities because of skin color. India does, too. Even though India, everyone focuses on caste, caste and class, upper-class Indians hesitate to match their sons with darker-skinned Indian women from South India because they don't want to have darker-skinned children. So, there's, you know, all that is still there everywhere. Again, very much the result of colonialism, I think. Um, it may have been there. You know, there were a number of rulers who came through there. The Portuguese have been there before the English... The moguls who were the Persians, Alexander the Great, the people had been there before that. Anyway, you know, race equality is a big passion of mine, so I, I can easily be distracted just into, into that discussion. Sure. You know, those things aside, it, it was a wonderful experience, and I value it and, and treasure it. Mm-hmm.
0: So what was it like going to Maine from, from your experience in India?
1: It was a tremendous culture shock. Probably it's one of the things I've enjoyed least in my entire life. And, I, I, you know, I've had a relatively happy life. My parents are wonderful. I have a a wonderful brother. My extended family is really wonderful. We have lots of of fantastic friends. You know, I just I have a a lovely extended circle of support. But that really was a a terrible shock. I I really had, like most people from other parts of the world who have never been to the U.S., even though I had, had some vague memories of the United States, I had a very idyllic view of what the United States was. And in my mind, it was mostly all that glamorous stuff from movies that we saw. And, you know, the comforts of a lot of different kinds of foods that you can't get in India. And people having more money so you can have nicer clothes. And everybody, you know, more people having cars and stuff like that. You know, coming back and actually experiencing the level of ignorance about anything that's different from what we know was a terrible experience for me. But it also taught me something very important, and that is that that kind of ignorance exists everywhere. I experienced the same kind of suspicion and caution and sometimes negative reaction from uneducated people who live in remote areas in many parts of the world, not just India, not just the United States. But it helped me to understand what I was experiencing in the U.S. I came back to the United States in eighth grade Eighth grade in India is two years before graduating from high school. So you're doing very advanced work academically. Eighth grade in the United States, I don't know what it's like now in middle school, but when I came back in 1977, it was a complete joke. I was doing, you know, sort of advanced algebra in eighth grade, and in the elementary school that I was in in New Hampshire, they were doing fractions. We were doing advanced physics, biology, chemistry. And in, in, the, in the school that I was in, they were, it was barely science. And the social studies classes were extremely unsophisticated, and um, the history was, I was shocked by the, the history. It was so different than what I had been taught by my parents about American history. And by that, I mean things like, yes, the people who were enslaved were forced to work and weren't paid, but at least they were well taken care of, and they were, they were Christianized. That kind of stuff was, unfortunately, still taught in school. And I had learned a very different history from my parents about what, what happened were when people were taken by force, on terrible journeys on horrific boats, for three months in chains, and and then forced to work their entire lives, and their family structure broken down, and not allowed to speak their own language—you know—any of those kinds of things. It was deeply shocking. Deeply shocking. I, I went to the the school that my mother had gone to. We lived with my grandparents when we first moved back to the United States. So my mother was known in that town. My grandfather was a state senator in in the state of New Hampshire. My grandmother was the the town clerk, so people could not work out what was wrong with, with me and what was wrong with my brother. You know, they many of these children living in this small town in western New Hampshire had never even been to Boston, so it was almost beyond their comprehension that someone would not only live beyond their area of New Hampshire, but would leave the United States or even leave New England. So I quickly learned an American accent. My Grandparents watched the news every night, so I think I probably learned it from Walter Cronkite. <laughs> I watched Star Trek every day. That was, I think that was a great source of comfort because here were these...
0: International crew these, members, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, it was a diverse crew. They even had someone from another planet. That was pretty exciting. And they were off, you know, visiting other worlds and actually trying to um, understand the cultures that they encountered. Although I must say that I thought Captain Kirk was a bit of a pontificator and a bit self-righteous, but, you know, for the time it was sort of radical, which I didn't know, but, you know. So I learned an American accent really fast and then just tried to blend in as much as I could. Once we moved to Maine, which is about six months later, I had started to get the lay of the land a a little bit. My first couple of years of high school weren't that fun, but within a couple of years I started to sort of get balanced out. And then I spent every summer at this wonderful Baha'i Conference Center working and, you know, getting to see Baha'i families from all of the United States, come for a week to take classes and, you know, and have, uh, sort of have a summer vacation with their kids. And that was wonderful. So I think that sort of sustained me through high school.
0: Mm. And what did you do after high school?
1: I went to Simmons College in Boston to get a degree. I felt that what I should do is get a degree in rural community development and try to go back to India or go to some country and actually do something concrete and proactive. And at the end of my second year, my professor, who was, who was my advisor, who was really an extraordinary woman, she was a sociologist of Syrian background, got an amazing fellowship herself and took five years off from her professorship at Simmons. And then after that, the Simmons really wasn't excited about me developing this interdisciplinary major. So I transferred to an, a marvelous school called the School for International Training in Brattleboro, Vermont part of the world learning, and it, it's really an extraordinary place. It started out as a language training program for Peace Corps volunteers in the 1950s and quickly became a cross-cultural training center because they began to realize, Americans began to realize that, wow, other you know other cultures are as legitimate and intelligent and world-embracing as ours. So the people then realized that they really had to begin to, to train people in cross-cultural sensitivity and awareness and help people process what they were experiencing, so they could actually help people, rather than spending their whole time being self-righteous and telling people that what they were doing was wrong. So that's how the school started, and by the time I got there, they had a a two-year bachelor program in international studies. They were just developing a four-year program with Marlboro College, which is uh, in Marlboro, Vermont, and then they had two masters, one in international management and one in uh, teaching English or another language as a second language. And that really was a life-saving experience for me because it gave me a vocabulary to describe my life as a multicultural person, as a person who had lived for part of my childhood in the United States um, in a multiracial environment, had then moved to a, a country which is wildly different than <clears throat> New England, and you know had really just become immersed, you know, learned to speak two languages while I was there. Um, I studied four languages in school, and then, you know, coming back to the United States and trying to figure out, knowing that, that my ancestry was American and that part of my culture was American, but so much of my culture was Indian because of those five are really crucial years. And this program gave me the vocabulary, the cross-cultural vocabulary, to be able to articulate really how I felt what I'd been through, what kind of sensitivities I had, how I observed cultures that I went to, it was a fantastic experience, and I'm I'm grateful every day that I was able to go there and and get that degree. Ironically, I did not go on to, I realized very quickly that, especially as a single woman, it would be very difficult for me to go back to India and work in development, and that at the very least, I would need to go through graduate school and get to the PhD level, and I was just too tired by Mm -hmm. the time I, it was a very rigorous bachelor's degree, and I decided not to pursue graduate studies at that point. So I sort of pursued other other avenues and never did make it back to India to to live or work in development.
0: Mm. And, And what are you doing now?
1: I have worked for the past 15 years as a software technical consultant for a small software company that's based in England. And that job is about to come to an end after 16 years. So I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing after that. I've cultivated a number of interest and areas of work, one of which is in children's literature. I'm very interested in how children's books educate all of us, but certainly give children windows into other worlds and windows into other places that it may not be easy for them to get otherwise. And while that is somewhat of a luxurious process, because it assumes that people have access either to books that they can buy or books that they can get from a library. So really, at the moment, my focus is more on the United States. Uh, it interests me greatly to, to think about how we can, without being too pedantic or preachy, as Barry Lane says, you know, really start to affect some change through reading. It certainly affected me, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. So that's one of my areas of interest. I work with a group that puts on a conference for artists who produce materials for children every year. We put this conference on at the same conference center in Maine called Greenacre Acre High School. This will be our 11th year that we have this conference. It's really to nurture artists and give artists an opportunity to network and really think about why are they doing this work for children? What are they trying to achieve? You know, is it just this glamorous idea of how cute would it be to have a book published for children and become a children's writer? Or are, they really, are there creative callings that, that are leading them towards service to children or service to humanity or whatever? So, I don't know. We'll we'll see.
0: So, why is your job coming to an
1: end? My job is coming to an end because some changes are being made in the way that our U.S. office is managed, and so they're laying off a couple of people,
0: Mm. and I'm one. (laughs) So, is that a good thing?
1: I don't know if it's a good thing for the company or the clients. We sold ourselves a couple of years ago, the company, to um, a larger corporation, and they are... Uh, very focused, very bottom-line driven, very customer service focused, but they're really trying to save money, I think. And so they they see that they're going to have most of the the staff who are remaining are going to work at home. I think that'll be good. Working at home myself, I know that that's an extremely efficient way to work, Mm -hmm. or at least it has been for me. I've continued to work for them, even though they're based in, in New England. I've worked for them for three years from Los Angeles, which is where I now live. It's incredibly efficient to work at home when you do the kind of work that we do. So I, I think that's a terrific move. And I really don't, I don't mind that I was one of the ones that was laid off. I have to say, I have a two-year-old son, so I, I only work half-time. But I'm looking forward to not missing any of his developments for the next couple of years if I don't have to.
0: What brought you to the West Coast?
1: I married the man of my dreams, and he had gotten a job here. So I ended up in Los Angeles, of all places. I've always considered myself an avowed New Englander, given that my family is is all in New England and and are of very New England stock. So I'd never imagined that I would need to even come to a place like Los Angeles. I think New Englanders feel so well, everything we need is right here in New England. So why would we think about going somewhere else? Say nothing of Los Angeles, of all places, you know, with its famous excesses and you know outrageousness and stuff. But my now husband got just a wonderful job. He's an environmental chemist, and he got a great job here. So mm.
0: Now, you seem to have a relationship with the arts. Yes. What What is your artistic bent?
1: My artistic bent, well, let's see. I grew up in a very musical family, so I have been a singer all of my life. I can remember first singing in front of people when I was, I don't know, four or five years old. So that's always been a wonderful thing. I have not pursued that lately, although now I do sing in the local Baha'i Gospel Choir, and that's a really wonderful experience here in Los Angeles. I used to be a theater critic and sometimes book critic for the local newspaper that I worked for when I lived in Exeter, New Hampshire, and I loved that. Um, I've always loved the theater, always loved books. I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I have any story to tell or whether I'll pursue the editing side, the spirit of children, the this, this group that I work with that puts on this conference every year is pursuing more publishing. There just aren't enough publishers who are able to get enough materials out there to children. Even though there's a lot, there's just so much more and so many voices that need to be heard. And so I'm in the process of figuring out what I'll do there. But I'm a great lover of the arts and a great, i going to say patron, but that would be the wrong word because patrons means that people give hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to the arts and I'm not quite there.
0: But you're a supporter of the arts. And I'm
1: a great supporter of the arts, so... Yeah.
0: So, could you sing me a prayer?
1: Sure. Would you like something in Hindi?
0: That would be great.
1: Okay. The founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, wrote a profound and beautiful book called The Hidden Words. It's a beautiful book, and, in, in, and what he does in, in short stanzas is to address humanity, saying things like, um, Oh, my children or, O son of spirit, or, O son of being. And then there there are these beautiful lines of wisdom and advice. One of my favorites is, O children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that none should exalt himself over another. I just think that is so profound and so important to all of us, whether we're concerned with gender equality, whether we're concerned with race equality. It's right there that Baha'u'llah is telling us we're all created from the same substance. Anyway, from these hidden words, Ravi Shankar, the famed sitarist, composed pieces of music to be sung at the opening of the house of worship in New Delhi, the Baha'i house of worship that was built there. It's in the shape of a lotus to honor the sacredness of the lotus flower to Hinduism and Buddhism, India's two main or largest religions. He was so inspired by the temple that he offered to write music for the human voice uh, because he's primarily an instrumentalist. And he took, it, he took these pieces from the writings of Bahá'u'lláh. So one of my favorites is the piece I sang in the choir that sang at the, at the dedication and, and had the privilege of singing Ravi Shankar's only compositions for the human voice ever. These are the only ones he's ever, ever done. And we had a Western choir and um, an Indian choir. And the Western choir acted as the orchestration for the Indians who were singing these beautiful words of Bahá'u'lláh that Ravi Shankar had translated into Hindi. And so these hidden words that I'm going to sing from here are pieces pulled from a couple of hidden words in which Baha'u'llah encourages us to break free from the chains of the material world and allow our spirits to soar into the spiritual realm and find our true reality through our spiritual life and our relationship to God. So I'm not sure how this is going to sound over the phone, but I will do my best. Well, thank you. O oh, Alo
3: Putra Ajiani, Ram Rame Shabda Jagatu, Sumlete Me Teri Kata Purani, O oh, Ajiani. रा Rom रोम रोम में शब्द मैं सब Juta ये बेशक लेकिन उसका सब कुछ झूठा सब में सब कुछ मैं teri disha sohani o oh, 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 ajnani o oh, alok putra ajnani rom rom shabda jagatu sumle me teri kata purani o oh, Agyani, O
1: Agyani. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, that's Ravi Shankar.
0: So, do you have a translation?
1: Yes. Look at that. Here's the hidden words right here. Let me just quickly find them. Take your time. Here we go. O offspring of dust, Be not content with the ease of the passing day, and deprive not thyself of everlasting rest. Barter not the garden of eternal delight for the dust heap of a mortal world. Up from thy prison ascend unto the glorious meads above, and from thy mortal cage wing thy flight unto the paradise of the placeless. O my servant Free thyself from the fetters of this world, and loose thy soul from the prison of self. Seize thy chance, for it will come to thee no more. O son of my handmaiden, didst thou behold immortal sovereignty, thou wouldst strive to pass from this fleeting world. But to conceal the one from thee and to reveal the other is a mystery which none but the pure in heart can comprehend. Frankly, it's mostly from the first two. Mm -hmm. The third one, I think it's just, you know, the beholding of the immortal sovereignty. So recognizing God.
0: So, Allison, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much. Me too. And I have to just say that, you know, one of the musicians who really inspires me so much is your wife, Jackie. I, I really think she's extraordinary. She composes at such a sophisticated level. Her work is really amazing.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alison Grover Corey, a Baha'i now living in L.A., who grew up as a Baha'i and spent her formative years attending the New Era School in India. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.bahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
4: O son of being, O son of being, O Son of being heart is my home, sanctify it for my descent, thy spirit is my place of revelation. Cleanse it for my manifestation, O Son of being, O Son of being, O Son of Being, Son of being O Son of Being, Oh Son heart S- is Bang, my home, o sanctify Bang, it for Bang. my descent. son spirit is Bang. my o place Bang. of revelation, son B- it for my manifestation. O Son of Being, Oh Son of Being, Oh Son of Being, Oh Son of Being. O oh, son of being, thy, oh, thy heart, heart is, is my home, oh, Sanctify it oh, for my, my descent, descent. O oh, son, son, oh, oh, son of being, my place of revelation, Son of for my manifestation. of O oh, oh, son, oh, son, oh, son of being, O oh, son of being, oh, O son of being, O son of being, O oh son of being, O son of is being, my home, O oh son of being, O son of my home, O son of being, O oh son of my home, O sanctified, O son my descent, O son of being, O oh son, oh son, oh son, oh son, oh son of being, O oh son of being. Oh son